There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, um, I'm Jasmine Lopez. I'm an audio producer and filmmaker based in New Orleans, um, though I'm originally from Los Angeles and my family's from Mexico. What I'm going to do today is take you through my journey going from audio to film. So it's just, I'm going to be talking a little bit about um, that journey and my process, um, some things I learned along the way, um, but I'll mostly be sharing, or also be sharing some clips of the different examples of my film that I have. The documentary is Silent Beauty, and it's about my family's history with child sexual abuse. Um, so know that there are some graphic descriptions of, of sexual abuse in these samples, so um, please feel free to step out if you need to. Um, so I guess I will just start with the teaser to give you a general sense of what the film is about. Because he was, he was a very strict man, very strict. I didn't see him like that. I saw him as Reverend Romero. El hermano Romero. <laughs> he, that man, had us fooled. He had us deceived. Everyone. I just, sometimes it, I wonder if anybody knew, if there was somebody else that knew. You hear this happens to people, but you never think it's going to happen in your own home. And then, especially for people from Mexico and other countries that say, oh, you can't tell because, ¿Qué van a decir? ¿Qué va a decir la gente? You're the one that's going to look bad. Did you cause it? You know? But these are children he did this to. This is Jasmine. Do you have a minute to talk? This is Jasmine? Yes. Do you have a minute to talk? Oh, yeah. Es, no. eh, eh, quiero tener una conversación contigo que es privada. No quiero que nadie oiga. Oh. Bueno. Yo he estado pensando mucho en lo que, lo que me hiciste cuando tenía 10 años. Cuando me, oye, oye, me no, no, no. Yo nunca... Ha pasado años y años. Yo... It's, it's been torture for decades. No, you did mira. this to me. You touched no. my vagina when I was 10 years old. You took me into, you, we were in the garage. 
And you did it several times. You did it to me. Oh. You did it to other people. Yes. And I want you to apologize to me. Oh, yes. ¿De dónde sacas eso tú? ¿Lo soñaste o qué? Really what gave me the courage to address all of this and to confront him is because I just could not stand the thought of that happening to Amelia. So that's Silent Beauty. Um, I got into audio in 2011, and um, when this started to happen, this was, Amelia was born in 2014, and uh, I, I'm sorry, 2013, and I saw a photo of her with my grandfather as, you know, she was a baby, my sister had taken her to go see the grandparents, and I, that was just it for me. Like, I just decided that I needed to tell my family what happened to me. Um, I needed to confront him and, um, you know, just take the necessary steps to start to talk about this. But, of course, he denied everything, and my uncles decided to support him. And so in 2015, I opened an event. I had a I reported it um, because he had access to children. He was also a Baptist minister, and my uncles would still take their children over to his place. And so an investigation was opened in 2015, and that's the phone call that you hear. So at that point, I was still in audio. I had started to record phone calls with my cousins that were survivors as well. I found out that he had abused other people. And so with their permission, we recorded a lot of our conversations and it was just kind of us processing. And, you know, I hadn't thought of making this a project until the next year when I pitched it at a film festival in 2016. Um, I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker and I decided I needed to start with my own story. And um, it just kind of took me on this crazy journey since then. Uh, the film has received so much support. I have received so much support from friends and people that I meet, different organizations. We are nearly fully funded, and it's super exciting. It's, uh, we find out pretty soon if we're going to get the... Uh, we're up finalists for, right now, about $400,000 to finish the film. So it's a very exciting time. Um, but one of the organizations that supported this project was Third Coast, and I got to go and do the radio residency in 2017, and at that point, I was still thinking very much as an audio producer, and so I was recording a lot of things, and in making the film, I've started to practice like bringing in audio into the, into the filmmaking process, so it's been very exciting to share that with my collaborators. Um, but one of the things that I did at Ragdale is I shared a couple of clips of my cousins, um, the conversations with my cousins. So this is an example of 
two of the phone calls and then kind of on the spot recordings that I do kind of like audio diary type uh, recordings. Um, so here's an example of that. When he said what had happened to you, um, I started to cry and I, he was about to tell me who it was done by. And I said the name first before he was able to say it. And he was like, how did you know that? And I just like started sobbing and it felt like this weight that was on my chest for so long and this pain that I had been holding in forever was just like gone. In the moment, I was scared because I was like, I don't know how he's going to take it. But in that moment with just my brother sitting there and him holding me, like I knew that it was okay that it happened to me. Not that it, not that that's okay for anybody to happen to, but it was okay for me to talk about it, and it was okay for me to feel the way that I was feeling because it's it's a very painful thing what what had happened to us, and for that to be open and just for, like out there, it was just a weight off of my chest. I felt amazing. Wow. <laughs> Chasna, like you calling him and, and going through that, that's really hard to do. That is something I can't even, I, I, that, I really applaud you for doing that and being able to go through that process. It was really hard. <laughs> like even just, you know, thinking about having to, like, do that. I just felt like it was, you know, so necessary, like, and to an extent, I was kind of not super duper careful with myself, you know, I didn't know, like, okay, this is going to be too much, or like, take a step back, it's okay Mm -hmm. to slow down, you know, I just went all for it, um, you know, for a lot of reasons, because I was just so ready to let go of this, and so ready to heal, and so ready for people, like, for people to know, know and speak the truth, you know? I just received two text messages from family. It's Saturday, April 22nd, 2017. It's actually three years exactly minus a day or two from the day I came forward to my family about what my grandfather did to me as a child. The news that I received was that my grandfather has died. I immediately felt a tension come over my body, like my my sort of abdominal region tightened up the second I read the words. Um, I'm trembling slightly. I don't really know what to make of the news. So, um, yeah, a lot of my process, like my emotional experience, I try to bring into the film. 
one example is what we're doing right now. When I'm saying we're, is I have an editor and a director of photography that I'm working with. We have a really small team, but I, it's a really strong team, and they're really, they've become really great friends of mine and, and super supportive in, in this uh, process. But um, one of the things that we're doing is we're taking you know, my experience in this and applying it to the film and like acts one, two, and three are sort of the way um, I've experienced all of this. So like first there was a lot of darkness and anxiety and, you know, sort of this cloudiness and I didn't really know myself, I didn't know my experience and so that's sort of what you get with act one. And then in the mid act two is, um, you know, we're getting to a place where we're discovering things and then act three is more this healing space. And so one of the things that I learned is that documentary filmmaking takes a really long time. As an audio producer, I'm used to like turning stories around right away. Like I've, I think the longest I spent on a, a documentary, audio documentary was three months. And it's taken from making the decision to completing the film, which is going to be in a year, it's going to be five years. So it's a super long process. I mean, obviously, it's not always like that, but it was something that was very surprising to me and something that I wanted to share because, you know, it was kind of a, a big lesson to learn. Um, a lot of times I became very frustrated and, you know, I just had to be very patient with myself and also the, the project. So another thing that I learned is that people, you know, our, our background in audio is a huge, huge strength to bring to filmmaking because a lot of times filmmakers don't have that training and so they're not thinking about sound. Like, that's secondary. And so if, you, you know, you're coming into filmmaking and you're thinking in sound and you're writing in sound, it's only going to make it that much stronger. Like, right now I have um, Bron Moy, who's my director of photography. He's brilliant and what he's filming and the way he's making this film is, you know, it's just, he's very, it's a super strong, um, his work is very strong. And so when you combine the two of us, put the two of us together, it's like this really strong project. And so I also learned that it's a very collaborative process. And, you know, you have like your editor, you also have your director of photography and all these other people that you bring in from time to time, depending on you and the project. But I'm very lucky to be working with Sarah Garahan as my editor and Bron Moyi, my director of photography. And so Sarah did me the really big favor of putting together a little video clip to talk about the project from her perspective. Hi, my name is Sarah Garahan. I'm the editor on Silent Beauty. So Jasmine and I's relationship um, in creating this documentary has been really special. Normally as an editor, we don't have direct access to the protagonist or to the person that the film is about. In this case, because it is a personal documentary, Jasmine and I can have conversations and collaborate about what each scene means. And we don't have to go through the director to talk to the documentary subject. Like I just, you know, whenever we're working through a scene, we talk about it. So for example, um, one scene that you'll see today involves a drone shot of a wave with these um, memories that are interspliced, this, these sort of flashbacks. 
the way that came about is through conversations with Jasmine and our team about the sensations she was feeling. So she talked about the ocean as this place where she felt this sense of peace and calm, but also this very overwhelming thing. And so at certain moments of the edit, when it feels right, we made the decision to kind of come back to this space, um, this space that represents such complicated emotions for Jasmine as a character and the journey of the film. Um, the moments that you see the flashbacks were, a were the result of another conversation that we had. Jasmine described a lot of her childhood memories as a mix of dark and light. These moments of extreme joy, this lightness, and these very painful moments, this darkness. And so what we did was we went into the bed of footage and started picking out these moments that represented both of those themes, both the darkness and the light. So this scene as it stands in the film right now could very well change in the next year represents this relationship that we're going to see throughout the hour of the film and um yeah i hope that was helpful thank you so much for listening um so sarah does this really amazing thing i love her so much I didn't know she was doing this, but she would like take notes on different things that I would say. Like if we were just having a conversation, having drinks, and I'm talking about, you know, how yesterday maybe I felt a certain way because of something that I was writing, or it was challenging for me to write something. Um, and another example is I treated myself to a retreat this summer, and I did a lot of writing and a lot of reading and I would share, reach out to Sarah because we're friends and so I would share different things about um, my process and my feelings and next thing I know Sarah has this document of like over the last three months of like everything that I've been experiencing and she's bringing that into the film and the scene about the wave is a really great example of our collaboration and how, how exciting it is because Braun decided to, because the ocean is this very special place for me, but it's also comes into my dreams a lot, and Braun knows this, and so he filmed uh, with his drone, he filmed some waves, and then Sarah brought the waves into a scene, and when I saw that, we played that back, in my head as an audio producer, I was like narrating. And so then we decided to bring that narration into the film afterwards. So it's really, really fun. What's really crazy is I just started working with Sarah in July and we already have acts one and two. I mean, obviously we have to do a lot of work and clean it up a little bit, but um, we're getting there and pretty quickly. But one thing that I didn't share is that when you hear, the, when you see the Super 8 footage, you're actually hearing sounds that my grandmother recorded of our house when I was a child. And she, it's really interesting because a friend of mine pointed that out, like, I think like 10 years ago when I started, started to go into audio and had a really strong interest in audio. And she's like, I was telling her about what my grandma used to do and how she would just put the tape recorder in the middle of the living room and record the sounds of the house. And she's like, Jasmine, that's how, that's why you're an audio producer. You know, your grandma was like your mentor. So it's like those sounds come in and out of the film as well. So yeah, I've been, as you can see, a lot of my internal experience is going into the film. And I've had to be, uh, I think generally I'm a very honest person. I just share maybe too much sometimes, but 
um, with my collaborators with Braun and Sarah, it's I've definitely pushed myself a little bit more to like be very, very open and to let them into that space because they're going to help me to create something out of that. And um, so Braun also did me a favor and um, made a little video to introduce what it's been like for him to work on this project. And one thing I should share, too, about Braun is he and I met through a mentorship program in 2017, and we became friends because he heard me tell my story, so he decided to share his with me. And he was sexually abused as a child as well, and he had never told anyone. And after filming with my mother, he decided to tell his mother. And so now they're on you know, going through that process uh, with their family now. And so to have Braun at my side every single time that I go to film with my family is just so beautiful because he and I can talk, like, as survivors, but, you know, he's a friend of mine and a huge support, and we just have these really long conversations after filming that only add to, to what we're doing. So this is Braun. Hey, I'm Bron Moy. I'm the director of photography for Silent Beauty, and I'm currently based in New Orleans, Louisiana. You know, working with Jasmine on this film has been a really incredible process. She's uh, a really intuitive filmmaker and really passionate about experimentation and open to new ideas. One thing I really respect and uh, enjoy about Jasmine is how passionate she is for uh, a clear line of communication and um, you know, I think that really makes it easy to work through any of the challenges that we face during production, uh, either logistically or personally or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, one of the challenging things I think I've experienced is, um, you know, really kind of more of a personal one, which is stepping outside of my comfort zone um, in the moments where Jasmine can't really be behind the camera uh, but has to be in front of it, which is a lot of the time. You know, she's 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 the main character of this film, uh, and she's directing her own story. So, um, you know, there's a lot of moments when, especially early on, where I felt kind of this discomfort around uh, making some of the decisions that you know directly impacted how we were telling the story. Um, but I think that really says a lot to the amount of trust that Jasmine has in this process. Telling Jasmine and her family's story has uh, the power to really impact and to create change in people's lives. And, you know, making a film around a story like that is the reason that I became a filmmaker. And I'm incredibly grateful for, for Jasmine for opening up this experience to me. So that's Bron. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's been a really big learning curve um, because I just kind of dove into film. But I've been very lucky to find people like Sarah and Bron and to find um, organizations that do fund you know, personal stories and first-time filmmakers, like Chicken and Egg Pictures is one of them. They are a funder, but they also offered me a year of mentorship. Um, Black Public Media has funded this film. Um, and uh, we just, 
found out that I got into Firelight Media's documentary lab, and that's 18 months of mentorship and also funding. Um, so there's a lot of resources out there, and you know, it just takes time to sort of like research and find them, but um, it's definitely possible to, to fund a film as an independent filmmaker. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So yeah, I think I'm just going to open it up to questions. So if you have any questions about going into filmmaking or collaborating with other people in this way um, or anything, please um, ask. Hello. Thank you very much. It was also really beautifully filmed. Um, um, so I was a radio producer and I collaborate with a filmmaker as well. Um, one of my biggest challenges is adapt my writing. So this is maybe a technical question. Um, did you find another way to write when you also work with image? And did you find other challenges when combining audio skills with film? Um, so the writing has, it's been interesting to work with Sarah because she, she will point out to me like when there are gaps that where we, you do need to hear my voice. And so sometimes she will send me prompts like write about your uncles, for example, and I will just write the way I write for radio. Um, so that's sort of been my approach, but then there's that example of the wave scene where it was actually me watching that scene without sound. And in my head, I was, you know, thinking this and I just immediately wrote it down and applied it to the film. Um, so the writing hasn't been difficult um, in that way, but it's just difficult because it is so personal and it's, like, I don't sometimes doubt myself, and sometimes I don't know if this is what I should be sharing or not. Um, so, yeah, that's, I think that's been the only challenge as far as the writing goes. What about just challenges, pardon, uh, trusting these collaborators with this very personal story? I mean, I've been, five years is good. I've been working on a personal documentary for 10 years, and I feel like, I can't tell anybody or I can't trust anybody with the footage. Or... Yeah, it's, it's super hard. Um, with Braun, I was lucky because we were friends first. And then I was looking for a director of photography and I just decided, you know, I don't need to be looking elsewhere. Like my friend makes really beautiful images. He's a survivor. He's my friend. I trust him. 
Um, he's also a very gentle person, and like he doesn't like when we go into my family's home, he doesn't take up so much space. Like he kind of just like blends in, and um, so it wasn't hard with Bron, and it's sort of a similar thing with Sarah. Like she is just she's very she's social justice oriented, and I see like who she is as a person and as an editor. I see what she puts out there. I see how she talks to people, how she talks about things. And so that led me to choose Sarah. Um, but it has been challenging to work with producers um, because it is, you know, you're two filmmakers and you both have to work on this together. And it's kind of sometimes both of yours. And so I think it was really challenging to let people in as a producer. And I just, twice I've decided that they were not the right fit, you know, because um, for personal reasons and also like maybe the team dynamics changed too much. And I just decided to take it on myself, which is a big difficult thing to do because Producing is one thing, directing is another thing, and to do both is just super hard. But I ultimately decided that for the film, I needed to work with someone else or just put that on hold for a while. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like ups and downs. And it's sometimes you're going to find people you trust, and sometimes you're going to think you trust people, and then you realize that you don't, and you just have to end the collaboration, which is hard to but you know you got to do it for your for your project hi my name is Verilyn. thank you so much for this work um i have a two-part question the first is um you know we see images of your family and you mentioned that some of your uncles took your um your grandfather's side so how like as far as permissions and you know being able to to use their images um like the family scenes and all that stuff like how have you negotiated that and like what are the like rules around that um and then secondly the funding aspect it sounds like there's a lot of funding coming in and you've gotten you said you've been working on this for five years um do you find that um funders are more likely to like kind of jump on board now that, you know, they can see it? Like, what's what's kind of been your experience as far as getting money for it? So for the rights, like, I hold the rights to the family footage. And, you know, for a while, I, I, I sat with it for a while because, you know, my family's images are there, and I'm putting this out there. And um, so it was it was hard to make the decision, but you know, ultimately this is for something bigger and we're trying to achieve, um, just bring us to a better place. And so I decided that I was going to go forward and go ahead and use the, the Super 8 footage. But it's also like them back in the day too, so it doesn't really look like them. Um, but if you don't own it, if, you know, if, say, my grandfather had it or somebody else had it, I would have to get the rights to that. You know, I would have to get that in writing because when you do find funders, a lot of times they want all of the releases. So I need a release for Amelia. I need a release for Sarah. I need a release for my mom. I need a release for anybody that comes out in the, in the film. Um, but as far as negotiating with my family, most of them have supported me 
Um, my uncles did not, but most of them have, and so all of them want me to do this. Um, and then as far as funding goes, it's, I think, it's sort of hard to get like your first funder um, because you know maybe your work sample won't be that strong because you don't have funding to film something and get an editor you know to to make something um, a work sample that's strong. But you know you just keep chipping away at it and keep trying because that's how that's how it worked out for me. Um, and once I got my first funder, it was like another funder came on, then another funder came on, and they're like, oh, you know, Black Public Media is supporting it. Okay, let's support this. You know, like it must be a great project. And um, so that's sort of how, how that's worked out. Hi, my name is Barry. Um, I'm about to do a family type of project. So I did kind of wonder, um, starting this off, did you like ever like have a family meeting or did you go to one person and let them influence others? Like, how did you get the conversation started that I am going to, you know, not only talk about this, but I'm going to talk about this most likely in a public type of way or record it and maybe do something with it later? Like, did you, when you started the process, was it like, I want to have small meetings or individual things of like, you know, I'm about to do something. Yeah, I, I didn't know I was going to make this a film when I started. That was two years later. So when I first decided to do this, I, you know, I was super, super scared. I was very scared. My family can be very scary, too. <laughs> and so I also knew that I was going to hurt a lot of people and change the lives of a lot of people and, you know, like they're not going to have a father anymore, or their father is just this monster. And um, I was very worried about my mom, because she's very fragile, um, and so is my sister. And so I decided, I was very strategic about it, and I reached out to uh, one person at a time, first my mom. And, you know, I told my mom, it took me a week to tell her. I went back home, and I was there for a week, and I could not tell her, like, day after day. And it was like, I would just like tremble and I felt like I was, I was that little girl again. And finally, on the last day, I did tell her and then we went and we told my aunt together. And then we drove up to tell my sister together to Oregon and from California. And so it, it was like that, you know, I just, it was one-on-one -on -one most of the time because I wanted to make sure people were going to be okay, you know, and I was trying to be very transparent, so I would let, after I told everyone, one by one, and we have a big family, my mom has eight siblings. And so once I did that, I just remained very transparent and would send emails to people, and I was like, I'm doing this now, I'm doing this now, if you have any questions, please reach out to me. When I decided to make this a film, I continued that, but then I got a message from my uncles who after I disclosed, just didn't speak to me anymore. And they asked me to take them off the mailing list. And I was like, okay, you know, I've given everyone a chance to like know what's happening and everyone a chance to come to me if they wanted it, to have a voice in this if they want. And, you know, they made that decision. So, yeah. How would you compare process-wise uh, interviewing for film and interviewing for audio? Um... So, uh, I mean, it's, I feel like it's kind of similar. I think I, I, 
am a pretty strong interviewer. And so it's, I didn't see a whole lot of difference except obviously like setting up for the visual, you know, but I had Bron there and he let us know when the lighting was, you know, he would change the lighting. He would tell us to like sit a certain way just to make sure that visually it, you know, was a nice, it, a nice frame. And so I think, I mean, for me, I think that that's been the only difference as far as interviews go. Um, but it's also been like just sitting down and having conversations with my family most of the time. Um, so it hasn't really felt like it was that different. Hey, I have a question about story structure. Um, my partner who comes from a visual arts background is in the early stages of embarking on a very personal family documentary and me coming from the audio world, I'm trying to figure out how I can be helpful to him. Did you feel like as an audio producer, you were approaching, you had certain impulses to lay out the story in a certain way that don't make as much sense for video and how, or how are you managing that with the people on your team who know that better? Um, so I struggled with structure for a long time. Like I only figured it out in July <laughs> and it, because it was my story and I was like so wrapped up in it that I didn't really know what would make the most sense. But when I contracted Sarah, we decided to come together. She's based in Los Angeles. Um, Braun is in New Orleans and, um, we came together with a producer that we had at the time. And we just started to lay out the each person's character arc. And then, you know, and just having a lot of conversations with them, they would pull things that, you know, they thought would move the story forward. And, well, we all decided on it. But um, they were really helpful in that process because it was so hard for me to, like, figure out, you know, where do we start? Where do we end? What is this? Um, and so it was just a lot of those meetings and those conversations that finally got us to figure out, like, you know, this is the structure that we're going with. This is the approach that we're taking. Um, yeah, so it was, you know, it wasn't just my own decisions. It was also Sarah and Pilar, who was a producer, that helped to bring this structure together. Hey, um, can you tell us a little bit more about, like, uh, when, when was the moment that you decided as an audio producer that audio was just not enough to tell this story and that you needed video? And, like, uh, why? How, how was that thought process, basically? Yeah, it's... So I had, a, it was going to be a radio piece first, and then also I was going to make separately a short, like a 10-minute poetic piece using my family's Super 8 archive. And so that was, initially, that's how I was approaching this project. And, you know, it seemed very manageable, but then, you know, the story grew so much. And I realized there were so many other people that were abused by my grandfather. And so there was a possibility to bring in so many characters. But then I was also thinking, you know, about impact and like reaching audiences. And as the story grew and then I realized, you know, like this is this is a longer film, like this is something bigger. And I think I need to just like go big because I want to reach as many people as I possibly can. So really that's 
that was one of the main reasons that I decided to go with film because you reach so many people. Hi, um, thank you for this film. I'm wondering what steps did you take to take care of yourself, your family, and even your uh, DP as they had to deal with all these hard memories and feelings? Yeah. Um, so I have a therapist, and I've had a therapist for the past five years um, that I try to go to every week um, because I know that I need to process this. And I know that I can't always process this with brawn. Um, it's very heavy, and you know it's a very emotional thing, and sometimes I can't put this on my team because they're already in it. You know, They're already thinking about it every day. And so I have to have that outside person to, you know, help me process and, and to take care of myself, but to also understand my experience. Um, tip, I put my therapist into my budget. Um, so that you can totally put whatever you want in your budget. You have to be transparent, but know that, you know, and that's something that I did for myself because otherwise I wasn't going to be able to afford it on my own. Um, so uh, the film pays for it. <laughs> but, um, you know, and after each, uh, you know, production day, like with Braun, we, we debrief, we, we process, we check in. We talk about how we're feeling um, even before uh, going on a trip, like we make sure we're okay and that we're ready. Um, I think uh, Braun has started also to see a therapist um, because, you know, he's now going through this and like this takes him back, you know, this kind of like takes him to places that are very emotional for him. Um, just one example is like after he met Amelia and after we filmed with Amelia in May, um, he kind of, you know, broke down and, and felt like he realized what this was about, you know, and it was her and that just hit him so hard and he had to like, process that and talk about that and so we just encourage each other you know because we know how hard this is and even for Sarah like not you know she's not a survivor of child sexual abuse but she is you know going through this with us and it's super important for her to take breaks when she needs to um I try to get lots of rest um, I didn't last night, and I think that's why I'm super nervous today. <laughs> um, that's super important. And so, like, just kind of knowing what I need to do for myself to take care of myself, I really push that. Yeah. Hi. Um, I am a... Well, first of all, thank you for this film. Uh, it's a, obviously a very personal project, but as a reporter, I'm, I'm thinking about um, the interview um, and the interviews that you did um, you know, in, whenever I've had to report on uh, traumatic events and people who have survived traumatic events, um, I've had conversations with my editor to avoid re-victimization. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could give us um, some, some tips to avoid that and how to conduct yourself in an interview. Um, and especially since people are um, working on projects with their families, uh, how that might be different or uh, what special considerations there might be there. Yeah, so this is the case with, with the, the conversations with my family, but also um, I meet a lot of survivors with it, through this work, um, dozens and dozens, and everywhere I go, I meet them. 
And so one thing that I do is I first prepare them for what's to come and, uh, you know, the types of questions I'm going to ask um, because I want them to be ready and I don't want them to be, like, shocked by something that I might ask, you know, or might ask them to talk about. But I prepare them in advance, but then I also prepare resources for them, um, you know, Maybe if, for example, if it's a, a survivor that came to me and that I'm, I've been talking to and, like, sharing my process because they want to also go there, um, I will find local, affordable, or no-cost or low-cost therapists in their area just in case. Or I encourage them to, you know, reach out to a friend afterwards and not sit with this because sometimes... As a survivor, you sit with us too long, you can kind of start to spiral sometimes. And so I just make sure that they have those things in place. And I also have, I just wrote into my budget an onset therapist, so that's going to happen pretty soon. <laughs> How did you come up with that? How did you come up with like, the idea of including the therapist in the budget? I feel like I've never heard that before. I was being sneaky and I just <laughs> I just you know snuck it in there because I was like you know what I need this and if my funders don't believe in that then they shouldn't be funding this film yeah um I was wondering how did you uh feel the interview process shifted between audio and visual like do you feel like people are more or less uh, open to talking about themselves when they're on camera versus just an audio recording? It's been really interesting with my family. Like, I thought they were going to be super freaked out by the cameras, but I think they're just so... They're all for this project and wanting to heal together. And I think that they just ignore the cameras. You know, it's. I think it's, it's definitely more in, intrusive, I guess. Um, you're kind of in their face sometimes. Um, although Braun is, like, amazing, you know, so he puts people at ease. And I also prepared my family for who they're going to meet. You know, it's usually just me and Braun um, and a sound person, depending on where we are. Um, so I prepare both parties. Like, I let them know who they're going to meet, what's going to take place. But then I also let my mom and sister know and my cousins know, like, Braun is actually a survivor, and he understands our experience, and he's going through this now, and, you know, he's one of my best friends, and I love him, and so just kind of try to make them comfortable in that way, but they haven't been freaked out about the cameras. It's like, I was really surprised by it, so I haven't, I guess I can't really answer that yet. You know, maybe my next film I'll be able to answer that, but so far it's, I've been lucky that my family's felt super comfortable with it. Um, are there other films or stories that you use to like inspire you or draw from? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's this film that I really like that I saw recently. Uh, my mentor, uh, Lucilla, through Chicken and Egg Pictures, uh, suggested it. And it's uh, The Tiniest Place. And um, I'm forgetting the filmmaker's name and I feel awful, but... She is interviewing people about a war that took place in her country, but she's the visuals that she uses aren't directly connected to what the people are talking about. And it's just really beautiful the way she does that and the way she interviews people um, and how, 
you know, very open and honest they are, I think is really beautiful. And so that was definitely some, a film that inspired me. Um, as far as the experimental goes, I'm very inspired by one of my friends, Hita Piffer, and she's based in Brazil. And she makes experimental short films. And she's just always, I've just always been enamored with her and her work. And it's, you know, her approach to the experimental is fascinating to me. And so I draw inspiration from that. Um, the Stories We Tell is, is a really good film that uses a lot of archival footage and also reenactments. Um, so that's really interesting. But sometimes I, I pull ideas from, you know, different things, um, TV shows and um, like just different techniques. And so I'm like always now, I, I don't think I was always this way, but now I kind of, when anytime I watch anything, like I feel like I can take little bits and of inspiration or little things that I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to try that, you know, and then I try that. It could work or it doesn't work. Um, so, yeah. Hi. Um, I was really struck by the phone call with your grandfather and just speaking about being nervous, like trying to imagine what that must have been like to prepare yourself for that and what you were expecting or hoping for um, when you went into it and how you sort of went about getting yourself ready for that. And also like if you had thought at all about different directions the project could have taken depending on what happened in that phone call because it seemed like a really pivotal moment in uh, for you personally but also for this story. Yeah, it's it was a really hard call to make. Um, and it was actually part of the investigation. So the reason it was recorded, because um, I didn't actually record my family until maybe a year or two after I told them, because I, I didn't want to betray them. I didn't. Want, I wanted them to, to know they were safe sharing things with me. And so there weren't recordings of my family. A lot of my recordings, because I would do a lot of like audio, diary type stuff. Um, but you know, it was very scary because I grew up. I learned to respect that person, and he was a Baptist minister. He was the leader of our family. And so you do not speak to him that way at all. And so even as an adult, like I was just trembling when I had to do it, but I knew why I had to do it. You know, I was, it wasn't for me really. It was for the children, you know, that in our family and maybe other families. And so I just did it. Um, that was probably too much for me to take on now that I, you know, looking back at it, I think it was it was really fast. Um, it was a year after I told my family. Um, and it was very scary for me. But, you know, I don't regret doing it because it, I th it, it just showed me who he was, you know, because as a survivor, what I did is I separated the two, the good person and the bad person. And that's how I was able to move forward. You know, like I just pretended this bad person wasn't there, you know, and then after some time, my memory sort of like clouded it up. You know, it might, I just, was it real? Did that really happen? You know, and it wasn't until I started to revisit it again that, you know, I was like, oh, yes, that's real. <laughs> um, but it allowed me to see who he was and to kind of finally say, okay, I'm done with you. You know, you are a monster, you know, and I'm, I don't owe you any sort of respect. I don't owe you any sort of space in, in this situation. 
And then as far as like different directions, what's really crazy is a year after he died, which was almost two years ago, um, I found out that he had written his life story and he gave it to my mom for safekeeping. And my mom was just like, oh, I just found this. Do you want it? And I was like, are you crazy? Yes, I want it. You know, I want to see what he has to say. Like, I, I'm actually very curious about this person, you know, like, who was he? Because I feel like I didn't know him, you know, even though he was like a father to me. And page one and two, he tells his story of how he was sexually abused by a priest when he was a child. And that gave me so much. Like that just really turned the whole story around for me. And we bring that into, into the film. We have some reenactments, not of the abuse, but like just his writing. And we bring that in. And it's not to give him voice or to forgive him for what he did, because I don't. Um, it's to show, to encourage some empathy, but to also show and talk more about where this comes from. That there was a child that was abused and left alone. And I also connected with that child, which was fascinating to me because I was like, oh my God, you know, like that's just crazy. I'm reading the story of this child and I'm just like, that is me, you know? And I was so much like him. And it just, like I wanted to take, I wanted to heal that child. Um, so I had a question about transitioning from audio to video because it seems like the, there are a lot of parallels, but there's differences too because I know audio, like you really can't have long kind of gaps of silence or ambient sound and just the storytelling structure transition because it seems like when you're, when you're doing like an audio story, there's a lot of narrative or interviews and it seems like with this, there's, there's a lot of space, a lot of like breathing room. And I guess just kind of that transition that you had to go through from audio storytelling to, to video visual storytelling. The space was done intentionally. Um, I think we all deserve a little breathing room when, when we're watching this. But also, it's, it, there was a lot of reflection in my experience. And I, I purposely, we purposely create a lot of space in the film for that reason. Um, but it, it is, it has been um, a pretty, like with, you know, with audio, you have your, your, your chunks of audio and you write around that. Um, and it's, I feel like it's kind of a similar thing with film because you have your scenes, you know, like they're, but they're just, they're visual and you write in that if you need to. Um, like I'm trying to keep it very light on the narration um, but yeah, so I don't, I don't know if, if that answered your question, but for me, it was kind of similar and, but the spaces that we have, it were done intentionally. Um, so uh, just to double check when you were doing this as an audio piece, that was primarily a solo work. A what? Uh, uh, you were primarily doing the audio piece on your own as a solo work. Yeah. Right? Did you find it harder or easier to do this kind of very personal story? with collaborators or without? I found it easier because they were very interested. <laughs> and so they helped me see things from 
their, uh, the outsider's perspective. And, but also, in this process, I need a lot of support. And it's also a very, very lonely process. Um, even though I have family that supports me and friends that support me, it's incredibly lonely. Um, so it helps to have Sarah, for example, or Bron, who is there with me every single time I go to film with my family. Um, and he's also a survivor himself. And in, he's become sort of like my brother in this process because he told, came to me first and told me that he had been sexually abused as a child and so we became friends because of that. And then almost a year later, I invited him to be my director of photography. And in filming with my family, he decided to tell his family. And so he and I have sort of like been on this journey together. And now Sarah is on and has been on since July. And it's just, you know, it, it's something that stuck with me is, is from childhood is that you know, I, no one wanted to hear my, what I had to say, what I went through. And now people are. And so, like, that's just so it means the world to me. Yeah. Hi. Um, really, really beautiful work. Um, I kind of have two questions. One is about a bit of a follow-up, um, how you actually found your collaborators. And it's been a long process. I mean, you say five years just from that. So maybe it's more of a hopeful question if the process has been cathartic for you? So in finding the my collaborators, it's like I shared, you know, the way I found Braun was it just so happened that we were in the same mentorship program. And um, I'm later going to tweet out some resources because I did want to share that too, um, but we ran out of time. Um, but film festivals have mentorship programs and also, um, like, pitch competitions, um, and I met Braun at this New Orleans Film Festival, th Festival through this mentorship program. We became friends, then I became familiar with his work, it's beautiful, and invited him on, and it just, it, it needed to be people that I really, really trusted. And I think it always has to be when you're directing a, a project. Um, but, you know, especially for this very personal project where I'm taking people into my family's home and taking so much from them, you know, um, or pulling so much from them. And so that's how I met Bron. And then with Sarah, it, Sarah was um, somebody introduced me to Sarah. I was actually going to work with another another editor who's family was going through a very, very similar thing. And she ended up taking a full-time job. And you know she was very sad about it, but she had to. And she did the research for me and said, I think this person would be really good. You know, Sarah's very social justice oriented. And she's just a lovely person and a brilliant editor. Um, and so that's how I found Sarah. But I think, you know, different programs where you maybe um, pitch your your project or if you go into like a mentorship program like right now I'm part of chicken and egg pictures and um, their accelerator lab and you go in with a cohort and so I've I've found people that way hi uh, thank you so much for sharing it um, I, from like a filmmaking perspective I feel like so much of the conventional way to do things is to cut the picture and then move on to the sound um, because it's such an exacting and complicated process so for you as a person from a sound perspective how do you kind of manage I know that you're working through the edit and figuring it out now but how do you how do you know when like enough is enough for the part of the process that you're in especially coming at it from a sound perspective um when enough is enough about I guess what I mean is like uh 
because you spend so much of the, so much time on audio, usually after you do a picture edit, like how do you get to the point where you're at where you feel satisfied with what you have in terms of picture versus sound, uh, where you are in the process? In this with this project, I think I'm lucky in the sense that I have Braun, who is you know super super experienced director of photography, cinematographer. Um, so visually, he kind of knows like if I miss something. He's, he's there to sort of pick, pick that up and we'll have, and then I'll do the same with audio or I'll think like, um, you know, in this, mo th this moment, this is where I go to a place of reflection and I think we need to hear this or that. Um, so it's really awesome that the two of us have these strengths and we've come together. And so that's happening kind of as we're moving along. And so it's not a matter of, you know, just, um, you know, letting the audio go or letting, you know, visuals go. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Okay. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, I appreciate it. We all appreciate it. I wanted to know what has been your role as far as production? I just actually, this year um, at our station, KLW, where I work, uh, we took, a, we took a, a piece I did and turned it into a documentary short. Um, and so it was just a two two woman team. So I did a lot, and mm -hmm. she did a lot. So I wanted to know what was your role as far as production um, on this project. So I'm the director and the producer. Yeah. So I I direct the film, and then I'm also producing, which is, um, you know, involves everything from fundraising to writing writing the proposals to fundraising, um, going to meetings with distributors, um, you know. Um, there's a lot. There's so much in, when it comes to producing. Um, but I'm learning, sort of have been learning as I go. Um, and that might be why it's also taken this long, although it does take long to make documentaries. But um, it's been a huge learning curve for me. But I'm, I'm taking those two roles. And I've actually had two producers come on and had to make the decision that it wasn't a right fit, even though I really, really needed the help. Um, because every now and then Sarah or Braun will kind of step in and do like producer type stuff. Um, but so I've brought people on to work with me, you know, for a few months at a time and then decide, no, I think this is it. Like I, I'm going to move forward from, you know, just on my own from now on. Um, but it's a decision that I felt most comfortable with because this is like, you know, my baby and I need to be 100% sure that the people coming on are, are the right fit. Since you said this has been a really long process of working on this film, what was it like in deciding when you were finished? Like, I feel like since this is such an evolving story, was it challenging for you to reach an ending point? Yeah, and, and I wasn't, there were points where I wasn't sure when that was gonna happen. There were points where I was super frustrated and tired and, you know, just exhausted by everything, um, by, you know, learning how to be a filmmaker, learning how to you know, produce and direct and learning about the film industry, um, trying to figure out where funding comes from. Um, but it's, I don't know. I mean, I've just had to keep going with it. You know, I had no choice but to keep going with it because this was my life, you know, and this is my family. And we are trying to work towards, um, you know, a, a better way of living for for our children. And so it's it was just a matter of going, going, going until finally I 
you know, in, in, I think it was like 2017 is when, the end of 2017 is when I found that book that my grandfather had written, and that really turned it around for me, and I think made this a stronger story, and um, so that's when I started to like say, okay, these are the pieces. These are the people we're working with. But even after that, there were times where like I had a cousin who was a um, main character in the film decided for her own reasons that she didn't want to be in the film anymore. And so it's just, you know, following that evolution. And then finally I realized this spring, like this is about me, my mom, and my sister, you know, and this is about Amelia and how really Amelia saved me, you know, like she's completely, my life is transformed because of this little girl. Hi. Um, so uh, you brought up how you use tape that uh, was a, as you put it to the person that you were interviewing, your grandfather, like, was a private conversation. Obviously, it was, like, in a, a very different and urgent circumstance um, than I think a lot of people recording tape, including with people that have hurt them. But, like, how do you, in general, approach, I have this tape that the person who said all these horribly abusive, disgusting things to me. They don't know I have the tape. I have the legal right to at least have the recording of that tape. How do you decide if you can use that in a story? Um, well, I think... Um, I mean, I think that's sort of a different situation, but I... Because I had, you know, it's... Are you referring to my, my grandfather's recordings? or Yeah, yeah, where it's like in some way the party that you're talking to doesn't know some stipulation of the recording or yeah. how you will use it, and then it's still necessary that you showcase that because this it's the meat of it. Um, well, in this uh, instance, uh, he had died. So it, it was recorded, and I, I had this. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't have it. I actually... the The detective that... Um, led the investigation, and, and I decided to report it because there were children involved, and there were family members that uh, supported him, even though I told them what he did, and they would still take their children to his home, and so I felt I needed to take, an, and he was a Baptist minister, and so I felt I needed to take this step so that, you know, maybe he wouldn't be allowed to be around children, and um, so this recording, I didn't have this recording until he died because the detective that, that ran the investigation was so supportive of me, and I know she believes me. And when he died, I, I emailed her and I said, he's, he's gone, can I have everything? And she handed everything right over. Like, she did all the work for me. She got all the permissions and gave me these recordings. And so I'm... I feel fine using these recordings because he, he's, he's died. Thank you. It's really beautiful and the space was gorgeous. Um, one of the things with audio is because it's just us, especially in a piece like this, the, the intimacy is so much more possible because you don't have to worry about the camera angle and the uh, even presence of two people. Um, and as audio producers, we. We develop a lot of techniques for putting people at their ease and forgetting about the microphone. I'm just intrigued. I know the trust was very important for you, but did you develop 
specific techniques to translate the intimacy of audio making to the intimacy, which is very evident, of your filmmaking? So I think, it, again, it goes back to uh, this collaboration between Braun and I. Um, but one, I think my family just really knows um, what I'm trying to do. You know, they're, they're not filmmakers, they're not um, artists, they're, you know, they don't know filmmaking and, and what goes into it or what's needed, but um, they just trust me completely and they trust the, you know, sort of mission of, of this, this work. And um, so there's that, but then there's also the wor working with Braun, you know, he is a very, very gentle human being, and he is kind of just like disappears into, you know, into a corner. And even if he's like right next to you, he's just like, he is so, uh, there's something about his energy and then the way he, he films that I think also puts my, you know, my sister and my mom who don't like to be in front of c cameras usually, um, just puts them at ease. And, and also I talk to them my mom and sister and cousins, I talked to them about who Braun was and, and what he meant to me and what he means to this film and this, my family. Um, and so I think that helped too. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.